And I think that concept of feeling is really, really important in terms of thinking about how we want to affect changes in human behavior as they relate to climate change. Knowing facts about food and shaming people about their eating habits is not a great way to create change. But there are aspects of feeling with uh, other folks that religious communities are really great at helping people develop that are immensely important to really creating long-term changes in habits. You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... I'm Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University, and my favorite comfort food is Reese's Puffs. My name is Adam Pryor. I teach religion at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. My go-to comfort food is mashed potatoes. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania. And my go-to comfort food is anything tasty cake, which if you're not from the Northeast, are just really, really gooey pastry type things in individual packaging that are always like $1.30. My name is Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte, and my favorite comfort food is milk chocolate. Rachel Jackson, Rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation in Hendersonville, North Carolina, and my comfort food is brownies. And I'm not saying my other one so that I don't get food shamed. (laughs) (sighs) I told you. But now we clearly want to know. I'm going to do my best not to do any food shaming in this episode because I am the worst. This is all this is all pointed at me, and I apologize if I do any projection outward. Yeah, I mean, whatever. Unless unless your go to comfort food is like methane gas or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I like to eat the ozone when I'm. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so mystery aside, then. Full disclosure, I no longer keep rabbinic kosher. I only keep biblical kosher, which means I eat what I what it says I can eat, and I don't eat what it says I shouldn't eat, but I eat the stuff together that tastes good together. Mm. For example, I can eat cheese, and I can eat all dairy, and I can eat all meat. And rabbinic kosher says, don't put those two things together. And biblical kosher says, you know, don't eat pork and right all those things. So for a long time, I did keep kosher. And when I stopped, my very first thing that I ate was five meat, six cheese lasagna. Oh, my goodness. That sounds amazing. Wow. It's like kielbasa and ground turkey and ground beef and turkey bacon and ricotta, mozzarella, parmesan. I mean, it's just it is decadence in a casserole dish (laughs) and it's like everything that is wrong with american society in a casserole dish so (laughs) it's almost like a heart attack in a casserole dish oh it's not almost like it is i mean and when you lift it it is it is literally pounds um well you should just uh, substitute out some of that stuff for beyond burger meat or impossible burger meat I'm sure it would taste and all the and all the dairy as we discussed last That's week how delicious. how dairy even shows up and that made me cry so mm. yeah well vegan dairy is terrible but that's besides so take the point us, we'll so get take to that. us down this, right take us down this road zach so 
I, a couple of years ago, got really into my own genealogy. I wanted to put together a poster for my newborn son that had both sides of his family so he could see where he came from. And I was also curious. I traced within a reasonable degree of certainty the first Jackson in my lineage that came over to the United States, which was not the United States at the time because it was 1631-ish. Wow. Wow. I say reasonable degree. I won't get into the to the wackadoodle things of of uh, the Jacksons, but that would would have been Robert Jackson who came over to Massachusetts, and then he and his buddy John Seaman went down to Long Island and bought up a huge plot of land called Hempstead, and s- made a life for themselves down there and built tons of uh, had had tons of of land and tons of money, and they have their their wills are still are still available to read. And so you can see the sorts of stuff that they had and the stuff they passed on to all their children. And their original cemetery is still up there. It's in a neighborhood that has nothing original in it. There's like gas stations and stuff. And then there's just a little itty bitty plot with this burial, this graveyard from the early 1700s. But one of the things that really disturbed me in reading that was was reading about my ancestors giving their slaves to their children because I would always assumed that my more wealthy ancestors owned humans because that seemed to be a thing that you did if you had money, but to read it, just, it was a different sort of a feeling. And I didn't, it, it really bothered me, really stuck with me. So I know that the name, uh, the name Jackson is a very popular name among African-Americans in, in the United States. And, the reason for that, um, at least the widely popularized notion of why that's the case, is because we were among the people who owned the most slaves. And when they were emancipated, they had our last name. And so it was not a last name that was inherited, but one that was forced upon them. And that that narrative I've heard before, and it's kind of a mark of shame on my family. I came across a story that the Jacksons bought up a huge plot of land and gave it and freed all of their slaves and gave it to them. And there's a historical African Methodist Episcopal church on that land. And the reason why there are so many African-Americans whose last name is Jackson is because they took our last name out of thanksgiving to how benevolent we are and how progressive we were in in looking out for their rights and whatnot, Mm. but there is literally no evidence of that outside of some stories that the descendants made up to feel better about ourselves because is that, is that similar to the story that so many other people have of saying, Oh, back in my, my genealogy shows that I have, you know, a native American princess back. uh, Everyone has a Cherokee princess, right? It's it's, that's what it is. Idea. Yeah. Right, that I can assuage my guilt by by making myself akin to these people. Yeah, and it's it's a guilt that we have because now we know, and universally, pretty much, that slavery is wrong. It is it is ridiculous to think that you should be allowed to own another human being, and and the fact that we can't even imagine what was going through their minds back then that they could somehow think that this whole institution was fine, and even the people who didn't think it was fine still didn't want to touch it. You know, like um, uh, 
Jefferson, right? Who who said it's like holding a wolf by by both ears. You dare not let go for what it will do to you, but you don't want to hang on. But the truth of the matter is as much as we up here in the North want to think of ourselves as some extra moral people and as opposed to those backwards Southerners, it's not the case. We had slaves up here. We only started getting rid of our slaves when they didn't make financial sense anymore. It was when the machines started being built and the cities and the manufacturing jobs, when it was cheaper to build a machine to do the work than to force a human that you had to feed and clothe to do the work, that suddenly we started listening to, uh, to the Quakers and got morals. It was only when it was easier to have, to have machines and slaves that we got morals. And then we pretended like we had the morals all along and that we were morally superior and that we outlawed slavery in the North because we were godly and we were good people. And we then had to force that on the South who didn't have the manufacturing and had giant plantations. And so it was still cheaper to own humans than it was because they didn't have combines yet. And this is kind of our story that our morals and our moral convictions, they don't really change our everyday life choices unless it makes financial sense or it's easier or it's better. We generally are not, as a species, are not willing to make sacrifices, make life choices that alter the things that we are, are comfort, alter our way of living just based on what we know is right. We're willing to be a lot kinder with ourselves than we allow others to be. And this is kind of where I come into climate change from. Recognizing in myself those same sorts of propensities that I know that this is a big problem and I know that there is nearly universal recognition that this is a huge problem that will, depending on who you listen to, wipe out the human race or at least make things really difficult for everyone but the richest people. And I know that individual actions contribute to that. And despite that, unless those actions are really simple, like recycling bottles, I am not as likely to do it. So I... I want to come at this from, from that position of humility, first and foremost, that I acknowledge that I am a hypocrite. I am, as the Apostle Paul said, the chief of all sinners. That I, The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. So I know what I'm supposed to do. Like, I, I wrote an article for The Orbiter, and in, in it, I tried to say that, like, I know what I'm supposed to do, that I know I'm supposed to drive less. And I work a half a mile. My church is a half a mile from my house, but I drove to church because I didn't want the wind to mess my hair up before the service. And like that level, that's my level of hypocrisy <laughs> right there. So that is kind of where Pat Brown comes into this. This is this is sort of my introduction into this new way of thinking about climate change in terms of our food choices. Pat Brown was a, an acclaimed biochemist, and he and some folks were eating 
eating lunch, talking about what is the number one thing that they can do as brilliant scientists to fix climate change. And you've got your ideas out there like you know, carbon tax and cap and trade and coming up with better batteries and better uh, upgrading the grid and things like that. And um, he, he himself had been a vegetarian since the 70s for this very reason. And he said, well, the, the problem is, is that the people who are vegetarians are typically people who don't care about food. Um, <laughs> like people like him, where they're like, it's just fuel, whatever. I could just eat rice and beans every day and be happy. But, and that's, that's the people cats. that cats, <laughs> that yeah, typically like cats. cats are, are totally okay eating the exact same food. Oh, I thought right? you were talking about that we could eat cats. I'm like, wait, wait. Well, that's why I had to clarify. Yeah, thank you. Anyway, anyway sorry, I <laughs> derailed you. No, well, he said so that veggie burger companies were marketing themselves towards people who were already vegetarians, and so veggie burgers are basically they're gross unless you like that type of flavor, and then you're in it, and it's like some itty bitty percentage of the population, like 2% of the population is a vegetarian. And then you're fighting over who can have the best tasting grass burger. And so he had this idea that <laughs> this is who people are. And so if we're going to get people away from eating so much meat, which we'll get into a second, why that is a thing that matters, that they would have to come up with something that was equally as good, if not better, equally as healthy, if not better, and equally as uh, as cheap, if not cheaper. And that's where Impossible Foods came from, the Impossible Burger that you see all over the place now, that they started as like a venture capital company where they did research and development for years before they made their first burger. They were trying to molecularly recreate the experience of eating meat. And the Impossible Burger is is actually, it's it's there's some debate in, in some health food circles as to whether or not they should eat it because it is genetically modified. They had to actually create mm -hmm. a new type of soy that would overproduce this particular type of heme that would then give the the burger its redness and its juiciness and its kind of meatiness. And so it's not like uh, Beyond Burger is made out of pea protein and uh, beet juice and some other things to try to emulate it. So that is what his mission has been. And they started with ground beef because that's the most eaten of, of the meats that we have and probably the easiest. And once they've made it so that they can make a lot of money off of this, then they're going to start fo focusing on replacing other meats in our diet. Have any of you had any of these things? Yes. No. To be honest, I can't really remember whether what I had was Impossible Foods or Beyond Burger. Wait, Beyond Burger or Beyond Meats? Which is it? Beyond I, Burger. I think it's Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. I could be wrong. Okay. But they're both the burger, the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger. Yeah. And so because I had read about like both of these companies before – 
And one day after I had played a round of disc golf with some friends, I'm terrible at disc golf, by the way, um, we went to... This story makes a lot of sense. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) We went to a restaurant for lunch after our game, and uh, they had on the menu the option to get either the Beyond Burger or Impossible Burger. And so like all of us at the table, for the most part, had heard about it and were like interested in trying it. So a couple of us ordered that. I got one and we just kind of like cut off some pieces to share with the table. But like my overall impression as someone who is an omnivore, I, I would love to try vegetarianism, but I think, I don't know, maybe I'm just... Uh, a hypocrite. I I think that it's great, and I have a lot of friends who are vegetarians and vegans, but I just don't know if I could do it. Anyway, side note, I tried it, and I thought it was really good. I felt like I could taste a little bit of a different. Like I think, had I had a a like real beef burger in front of me, and had tasted that right after or before trying the meat based version, I think I would have been able to tell. But, yeah, I think uh, compared to all of the veggie burgers that I've had, and I actually like veggie burgers. um, I think some of them are done really well. It definitely tasted way more like meat and looked way more like meat than any veggie burger that I had had previously. And I think that that's like part of what's really impressive about it. And Zach, you hinted at this, but I think one of the main goals is it's not just to like make it taste better for like vegetarians and vegans like these companies want they're trying to reel in the meat eaters because like meat eaters some of them some of us like veggie burgers but this is i think an attempt to like create a little bit of camouflage so that you really do have like simulate the experience of eating a beef burger but you don't have to have any of the guilt with it which is a really interesting problem to solve and I think that they're doing a really good job and it's really like fun to read about the like up-and-coming success of these companies <laughs> yeah if you go to the grocery store you'll find them in the meat section not in the yeah. uh, health food section health food yeah, yeah. And one of the other interesting things is that like, like I, I was reading one article it might have been in the one that you sent us back but um, I've read a couple other ones. And there was um, one reporter who was saying that the Impossible Foods, Beyond Meats, those kinds of companies are sometimes critiqued as being like overly processed. And I read this interesting piece where someone was pointing out that that is a, a form of classism where basically wealthy individuals or organizations or places like Whole Foods where you can get like a lot of healthy unprocessed foods those are like more expensive options that are not available and accessible to poor people and so to expect that healthier options should be unprocessed foods which are usually more expensive than more highly processed foods like fast food that tend to be more like available and accessible for poorer people that this is it's a, a form of classism and the like people that have access to the healthier options or like more un- unprocessed foods, if they also tend to be like more liberal progressive people that have this implicit assumption about like what healthy food means, 
they end up acting against the progressive climate change agendas that they themselves would explicitly claim to like uphold or maintain. So it just, again, is about like, it's about more than morals, but it also like these options that are going to save the world have to be accessible to people that can't afford to like do the most expensive thing, which goes beyond food and is also about like transportation and housing and all those things. So is the goal, I guess the goal of it all partly is sustainability, like sustainable practices and I can only part of speak, it? I can only speak to impossible foods. There was a, a really good article uh, in the New Yorker that will be in the show notes called Can a Burger Help Solve Climate Change? And th- in it, Pat Brown is talking about how this is the reason why he started the company, because th- one of the number one contributors to greenhouse gases and to deforestation and to soil acidification and all of these things is the meat industry. And mm. so if if he could use his biochemical skills to simulate the the experience of eating meat and get people away from that, then he wanted to. So he is out to save the world. I don't know about everyone else. I just know he is. Yeah, and I think I think for him, it's an alternative to meat for an environmental reason, as opposed to an alternative to meat for a healthy reason, <laughs> right? So, so that so you can market it as a this is just an alternative. It's not saying one is healthier, one is less healthy. It's saying this is better for the environment. That's it. So whether or not it has more salt or if it's more processed or whatever the health arguments are, that's not that wasn't his purpose. His purpose was the health of the planet, not the health of the individual eating it. So it makes me think about and this may be not at all related, but, you know, the push, I think a couple of years ago, it really took off the idea of like with with cattle being grain fed versus grass fed. You know, grain-fed mm-hmm. beef versus grass-fed beef, and wasn't that part part of the emphasis on that was about sustainable practices too? Because I mean, I didn't really pay attention to it much, but I you know mm-hmm. did remember the idea that there is a distinct, apparently, difference in the taste of the beef if it comes from a grass-fed cattle versus a corn yes. or grain-fed cattle. So typically, so- the way that that they're raised is that when they are when they're born. They are immediately taken away from their mothers so that their mothers can lactate and they can get milk out of them. And the mothers cry for weeks, but that's a different story. And then they're fed, they're grass fed. So they're just kind of led to roam around and eat grass. And then once they've matured a little bit, they bring them inside, feed them these pellets and, you know, food, the grain food to bulk them up as quickly as possible so they can then be sent off to slaughter. Okay. Because then it's cheaper because once you get them up to, up to peak levels you want to kill them as quickly as possible and then there's there was this new strategy of grass finishing where once they're fully grown you take them out and you bring them back to the fields for some time to have them to eat grass at the end which makes the meat taste better i suppose and the thinking was that if the cows are eating the grass that it's stimulating the grass to grow deeper roots to survive and so the deeper roots sequester more carbon and so grass-fed beef actually ends up canceling out much of its emissions. And that was, uh. that, was, that was what they said. And there's a study that we'll put in the show notes that says the opposite. It does help a little bit, 
but not nearly as much. You know, it's like standing behind your car with a plastic bag trying to get rid of the the smoke coming out of the back. You know, it <laughs> you can get a little bit, but it's not it's not much. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, my sort of sense of particularly around like cattle and you know the couple of farmers and stuff that I've talked to because they're neighbors um, is. <laughs> <laughs> um is 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 that a lot of this has to do with with how well managed the process of something like uh grass feeding or pasture feeding is that if you if you have a poorly managed pasture feeding system it can be just as bad as grain feeding cattle either mm-hmm. environmentally or for the cattle themselves but if you if you have a healthy rotation system it can be better but is it good for the environment i think that that's a wider sort of question to to ask and and i think it would you know this is where in in my mind a lot of when we when we talk about foods and climate change we're also talking a lot about local cultural settings yeah and and how it is that food is both produced and transported and and used in those in those areas and what that looks like much as i love you know the the various versions of burgers trying to simulate the feeling of burger without it actually being made of meat. There's there's part of me that says like is that is that really the best way to try and go forward with dealing with issues of eating and climate change? I that that feels very American to me. Hmm. Right, like creating like, a product. Yeah, let's let's create a product that lets people change their habits as little as possible. That's the best way to deal with this. That feels pretty American to me. That feels like a good way to deal with Americans. Let's get them to change very little about what they actually have to do and experience, but make it help the world at the same time. Because if we ask Americans to sacrifice anything. Yeah. With recycling bins, when we first started putting those out all over the place, you know, initially they, they were very, in some places I would be, they were very challenging, challenging to get to because they weren't everywhere. And so people wouldn't use them and they wouldn't have it. You know, sometimes in some places they wouldn't have them right next to the trash cans. And so people would be like, I got to walk all the way over there. And it's not like it was that far away. They just, it was an inconvenience. Now you see them next to trash cans all over the place. Because I think back to your point, Adam, it's the, the American went to try to make sure that we have as little inconvenience as possible. But I also think in this case, that's not necessarily, I mean, I, I agree with what y'all are saying, but I think that it's also the fastest way to make change when we have like a clock ticking <laughs> against us. And I think that probably if you talked to these people and like who are in these plant-based food companies, they would, I imagine, understand that strange, like almost ironic (laughs) sense in which they're trying to simulate a burger. But I think the overarching goal means that it doesn't really matter that you're like not asking people to change their habits because like first you have to do something that convinces people that it's possible to live a life in which you can have a plant-based diet. And I think only then you can start to really like expand beyond that. And I think this is similar to the story that you shared at the beginning, Zach, about how like once slavery wasn't 
financially viable for people, then the North started like fighting against it. Um, like people need to know, and I'm not saying that this is like the morally superior way to do it, but I just think people need to know that they can do something often before they start to feel a moral sense of superiority about what they're doing. And that feels yeah. very backwards, but I think that's just how like large social change happens sometimes or often. See, I, I think the slavery analogy is actually really, really good, but I, 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 I'd read that a little differently, right? I think what I would look at and say is it was when it couldn't be afforded anymore that people found a way around the issue. And, and I kind of want to say, I don't, I don't think making it convenient or let, there's a good substitute will really do much. I, I kind of want to say, you, you have to make people pay the true cost of what it is to eat meat, and then they'll stop. Mm. But how yeah, would you do if, that? If you go... Ugh. You'd have to take away a lot of subsidies, I think. Exactly. And that's the problem, I, I think. That's, <laughs> it's just like, believe never me, there's, there's nobody like around, like in terms of my neighbors, who's going to be super in favor of that by any stretch of the imagination. But, but I, I mean, unless... We, I'm not very hopeful about my other fellow human beings. And so my sense is that, uh, you know, <laughs> you have to be pushed in order to to sort of make those sort of changes that most people won't choose to do them. Mm. Yeah. Well, and, and I always hear the, the pushback because I live in cow country as well, uh, cow and corn. And. If, if we were to cut subsidies to this and, and if we were to eat more plants and fewer and less meat, then all of those poor farmers out there would lose their jobs. They'd lose their, their homes. They'd lose all these things. And everyone is really worried about those, those farmers that they were not so worried about 50 years ago, 60 years ago, when we started the, the, the rise of the, these mega farms started happening where it used to be that everyone had a family farm. I mean, my church is built on the Adams family farm that they gave to the church 60 some years ago to build a church on. And everyone had one and they had cows, they had horses, they had their own plants that they grew. And then it became financially unviable to do so. You have to buy so many seeds in bulk to, for it to be worth it. And you have these big machines that everyone, that people with money have. And then you end up with just a handful of people with a ton of land. It's like 1% of the country is farmers now. It used to be in the 80s. And so now we're, we're now suddenly we're worried about that. We were not so worried about it before. But now I think we we need to be more worried about everyone else. And just to throw a couple of facts and figures out there, and this comes from some calculations that I put together from reports from the Journal Science and the Food and Agricultural Association of the UN. When I was trying to figure out, and I was on, when I started my diet, and I was eating a lot of like meal replacement bars, and each one generally had about 10 grams of protein. And I wanted to figure out which one of those bars had the least environmental impact. And I learned that in terms of CO2 equivalent, and this is this is taking into effect that some gases like methane have more of an effect than carbon dioxide. And so it's just kind of averaging them all together. So for 10 grams of protein, beef sends out about 5,000 grams of CO2 equivalent over the course of its existence. Because you think you got the 
the little thing is born, it has to live, its, its stomach is ruminating all of the, the grass and it's creating a ton of methane and carbon dioxide. And then you think about all of the food that then has to get grown to give to them and then in the slaughter and the transportation, all of that, uh, 5,000 grams. Um, so then the next one is, is whey protein, which is in most of these diet bars. And that was about 1,000 grams of, of, of CO2, which is much better than beef, but not as great. Um, chicken was 570. Eggs were 420. And this is where it gets fun. Crickets were 143 grams. And if it takes 1,000 gallons of water for a pound of beef uh, over its lifetime, it only takes one gallon of water for a pound of crickets. Just, just throwing that out there. Peas, pea protein, by the way, is also only 40 grams. 40 grams of CO2 equivalent for 10 grams of protein out of peas. IQ bars are a, a bar that, that use pea protein. Uh, a lot of the vegan ones do. XO is, is a bar that uses cricket protein. So in terms of just CO2, just we're forgetting about what it does to the land and to the, to the forests and the trees and all the pollution in the waters that end up giving our lettuce E. coli or whatever, which is not the lettuce's fault. That's the, <laughs> those are the farmer, the, the, the pigs and the, and the cow's fault. Beef is just enormously more wasteful than anything else. Stephen Chu, who's the um, former Secretary of Energy, says that if cows were a country, their emissions would be greater than all of the EU and behind only China and America. Wow. So it is important to think about the small farmer and the big farmer and your neighbor, the farmer. But my goodness, it seems like the problem's a little bit bigger than that. saying, Zach, that we didn't think about these farmers 40, 50, 60 years ago when big farms became the thing as opposed to the family sustainable farm. How much of this is a political issue? And you know, we were, Adam, you were talking about subsidies, which is a political policy. Um, and in our particular climate right now not the climate crisis but the political climate crisis <laughs> how how the individual person even navigates saying okay so beef is bad or beef is less good and maybe we should think about it in these other ways and yes i do I, my heart does go out to those farmers will they find another way and if we're really only looking at one percent of the workers how much how much do we bend to one particular uh, product one particular commodity in america right uh, we're not we're not a single commodity country right there right. there certainly are those countries don't get me wrong right we we certainly see that with places like venezuela the middle east where they have one commodity and if you mess with it you're messing with an entire system and we're not that way i mean just we can even look at the the recent the recent tariffs and the agreement that China is going to be buying like 40, what, 40 million tons of soybeans. Who knew that we, who knew that we grew so many soybeans? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> oh, they're all coming I mean, from my neighbors. 
Yeah. When they're not growing corn. <laughs> right. So we know we grow it. Do we realize that we grew and exported so much? So if that's the case, so, so what I'm saying is that how do we, is the tail wagging the dog in some of these places? Are, are we allowing one or two industries to, who are screaming, you know, the sky is falling to, to control our environmental needs? So that's, I, I'm, none of us are political scientists here. So I don't, I'm just speaking as a citizen, <laughs> not as any, anyone with any knowledge beyond that. Um, but, I, but I wanted to respond from a, a religion, a religious side. So we, we've been, right, one of the things that I think our group does well is meld uh, modernity with science and religious concepts. And if we, if we are such a country that is seen of and kind of talks about religion a lot, regardless of what religion it is, we certainly talk about it a lot. Most of our, most Western religions value the land so much. And where did we move away from that? Where, where did, where in religious circles did we get away from this idea that we can treat it so poorly? I do think there were really different senses historically in religion about where we treat the land. And I, I'm, I'm going to point to sort of like before and after colonization of the Western Hemisphere. Because I think you saw a real shift in the way in which particularly European legal precedent was used in order to justify, for lack of any better way of putting it, the moving in of farmers on new land. So, right, if you think like to like early colonial America, what you'll find, particularly in like legal writings and, and then also in some reflective writings from the period, are these really fascinating descriptions of Christian, particularly Christians in this case, right? A Christian right to cultivate the land, a duty to cultivate okay. the land because of our status of being in the image of God. And the idea that the untamed, I, I, can, I can keep sort of rolling this out, right? That untamed land is not fulfilling its potential. And because it's not fulfilling its potential, we have a duty and obligation to work it and cultivate it. And that means land not under use is actually not owned or technically the property of anyone, which then became a justification for taking lands without payment from various Native Americans. Right? This is the sort of like argument from usufruct land that's used to settle the Ohio Valley. I think there's this sort of sense in particularly religious communities that, well, we have this deep respect for land. And I, I want to say like, yeah, we we did biblically. Um, but in in practice, right, particularly in conjunction with the rise of industrial society, we see a sort of really different use of biblical doctrines, uh, bi biblical symbols and biblical concepts in order to to justify land cultivation that I think is still actually very, in, in some cases, still in vogue. I mean, I, I still think you would hear communities sort of at least hear that argument and go, well, that makes sense. I mean, I think I kind of go, no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense <laughs> at all. 
let's let's back up why that's a terrible terrible argument but 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 i mean i think it there there is a certain appeal to it that has a lot to do with how it is that people see their responsibility towards the land and i think you could extend that to food yeah i yeah i i would lump food in with land at the same man it's shocking just to hear what you're saying how like protestant american is it to say if you're not being productive then you're not fulfilling your purpose that you need to be producing something in order to be seen as as fulfilling your purpose i mean that is just so protestant american nonsense <laughs> something that you'd expect you know thomas paine to say um <laughs> oh, wow oh, you that we have yes, not trash talked thomas paine in some time um no, I wouldn't, I mean, actually. He's a man who, who truly appreciated the beauty of, of rest and of not having any friends and being drunk all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like if no, this was 150 years ago, he would have smacked you in the face with a glove. Probably. Right there. No. That I mean, it. we can talk about, about Martin Luther if you want. I mean, Oh! <laughs> no, but that I, would have been that, smacked I, with chain mail. no i i totally agree right like i mean that but that to me is like a very like american protestant sort of approach to sort of to to thinking about these issues right i mean you you could uh, you could imagine hearing that during the the great awakening and the second great awakening without any sort of Mm -hmm. problem i would also add like this conversation and question about like how when did we start treating the land this way like when did the mindset shift it reminds me of this article that I read a few years ago by um, a scholar whose name is Lynn White Jr. And the title of the article is The Historical Roots of Our Ecologic Crisis. It was published in 1967 and uh, the article itself was meant to be provoking and he says a lot of things and like received strong reactions Uh, for and against his argument. But I just remember one of the interesting things that like stuck out to me and that I remember from that article because I hadn't seen or uh, like heard someone say it in like the straightforward way that he did is that when Christianity overcame or tried to replace other cultures like through colonization, replacing these other cultures that had more animistic ways of seeing nature Christianity sort of neutralizes that like animistic way of looking at animals and trees where like everything has like its own kind of spirit and there's this different sort of connection and relation that people have to animals and like nature, land, whatever. And that when Christianity comes, that's sort of like absorbed out of the land and animals, nature, and instead you have a more like neutral land space like a tree is just a tree and you can like take care of it because you want to eat from the tree but the tree itself like doesn't it's not going to respond to you in this relational way it's just a totally different way of like relating to the world around you and sometimes i think that's like a more implicit way of uh like tracking this trajectory of how our mindsets have changed because you can also talk about like more explicit systemic changes like industrialization and stuff like that but that was just one thing that I thought was kind of interesting because it focuses on this human 
like emotional relational element to nature that we don't necessarily feel the same way at least in like western christianity in that sense and i think that concept of feeling is really really important um in terms of thinking about how we want to affect uh, changes in human behavior as they relate to climate change. I mean, I think that's something that Lynn White really drove home that has stuck with like particularly like eco-theology and the Christian tradition for the past 50 years that, that and, and I would beat this drum wholeheartedly, right? Like knowing and shaming people, uh, knowing facts about food and shaming people about their eating habits is not a great way to create change. But there are aspects of of feeling with uh, other folks that religious communities are really great at helping people develop that are immensely important to really creating long-term changes in habit. I, I was actually looking at my, my work bulletin board, and one of the pamphlets that I have on there is the Creation Care Alliance. This happens to have a particular chapter in Western North Carolina, but I believe it's a, uh, it's a national organization. And they're, they're printed, uh, their motto printed on there, or whatever it is, maybe it's a mission or something, I don't know, is inspiring and mobilizing individuals and faith communities to care for God's creation. I think that leads exactly to what you're talking about, Adam, that it's, it's really saying, okay, let's inspire you to do something, you know, maybe, maybe taking away um, or bringing back the emotional piece that we lost in this piece that Kendra was talking about, where, when we went from, we have dominion over the land is one of the translations that I see in Genesis. Um, and what does that mean to have dominion over as opposed to be in relationship with? And I believe that part of this creation care alliance is saying, if it's God's creation, then we need to be in relationship with it. Even, even if we don't believe in a, that the tree has its own spirit, right? really from a shamanistic perspective, but that, it is still part of God's creation and therefore we are responsible. And I think even apart from the emotional uh, valence of just like feeling in relation with something, companies are always like taking advantage of emotions, maybe not in the way we've been discussing. But I think even the uh, one of the articles that Zach shared with us about how using insects and like insect protein powder as a like meat substitute. One of the articles mentions how researchers have really been pushing that we switch the messaging or the advertising to be away from like altruism and why it's better to eat this and to talk about how it can like make you feel pleasure. Interesting. Like yeah. if somebody thinks that insects are gross or it's just not in the diet of someone, like don't tell them why it's better to eat a grasshopper. 
but create a product mm -hmm. and messaging that makes them feel like this is going to be delicious and I'm going to like it because it's going to feel good on my tongue and make my stomach feel satisfied. Well, th in that study, they gave people chocolate covered mealworms. And in one group, they said, this, this is the environmental reason why we should start getting into eating insects again. And the other group, they said, um, here is this gourmet delicacy candy that is all the rage right now. And the unique crunch and citrusy after flavor, whatever sort of words they use, is unlike anything you've ever had before. This retails for blah, 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 blah. And the group that thought they were having something fancy liked it at a higher rate than the people who thought that it was some moral responsibility to do something yucky for the environment. And so that's what people in the world of huh. um, entomophagy are working on right now. You just wanted and to say entomophagy. <laughs> I love that word, entomophagy. The problem is most of the major, uh, the major insect farms are sending their their stuff to the big to the big places to you know to feeding uh, other animals and so it's hard to it's hard to get cheap supplies for for places if you live in a big city you'll probably have some restaurants in your neighborhood that will sell like well-made stuff that's not just gross out factor but is actually working to bring out certain natural flavors actually it, the history of this is super interesting that the closer you are to the equator the more likely you are to have insects in your local diet because the more around more often in colder climates, you have fewer insects and the insects you do have are typically more of a nuisance because you only have them in the summer. And so you don't eat them as much. And when Columbus and them first came over, we've got some, some bits in um, uh, Diego Shanka's, uh, who says his physician, during their uh, 1493 Caribbean expedition, he wrote in his journal that uh, the locals eat all the snakes and lizards and spiders and worms that they find upon the ground so that, according to my judgment, their bestiality is greater than that of any beast on the face of the earth. Wow. Yeah. And that sort of a language is what Columbus and his folks brought back to Europe, that the locals in the Caribbean and in Central and South America, they eat bugs, which means that they are savages right. of an unknown kind. And so the message for all Europeans and the settlers that came over was the eating of insects is Thank disgusting and is only for it's dirty and it's only for savages. It's not for us dignified people. And so we have that that kind of racism and, and classism baked into our disgust mechanism into eating these creatures. But I mean, the, the famous example is, is um, uh, lobsters. A lobster was peasant food because the rich fancy people didn't want it. And yeah, the most of the lobsters just went to animal feed because it's a disgusting creature until uh, they started shipping it out to, uh, I can't remember exactly now. It was like the gold rush people and telling them that it was a delicacy from the Northeast and they all loved it and they had all this money and they came home and then we're like, Ooh, I want that delicacy again. And then it became a fancy people's food when it was just peasant food before, because it's, it's the grasshopper of the sea and mm. it's no different, but it's, it's this cultural disgust mechanism that's cooked into all of us. But 
there's there i think personally that insect-based protein is going to need to be a part of our future solution it's not going to be the future solution we're not going to go back to eating termite mounds because per per pound termites actually produce about the same amount of co2 as uh cows so <laughs> wow um <laughs> unfortunately because they are um eating wood and whatnot huh. um Actually, Dr. Julie Lesnick, she's pretty much the only one out there who's studying the history of the anthropology of eating insects, as we talked with Brianna about a couple of weeks ago. And she says that a single human sitting ne near a, a termite mound and just kind of poking a stick in and eating the termites that come out, just nibbling away for an hour could get all of the protein and nutrients they need for an entire day. What do you do if you're willing to eat insects, but you don't want to live next to them when they're alive? <laughs> I just I just want someone to send me chocolate-covered grasshoppers, but I don't want to have any bugs near me. <laughs> I, I think most people feel that way about chicken already. <laughs> I would like... I mean, it, my family used to have chicken. Chickens are cute, and they have feathers. <laughs> bugs are creepy-crawly. <laughs> Well, chickens are just very small dinosaurs. <laughs> Let's be clear. It's true. You're just making them sound more. They should like, be adorable. terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I am holding in my hand um, these what look like test tubes. That one of them is a uh, mango habanero roasted crickets, and the other one is jalapeno garlic roasted crickets. And they are in oh these gosh. wonderful little test tubes. Will you describe things. for us what it tastes like to you? Please tell me you're going to eat these right I now. I can. Yeah, Th right, this is now. What I, right now. Right now. This right isn't now. Really like right gross now. Out food. Do it. Right Do it. Now. What right I now. eat during the day is because you don't need to eat a whole lot of these until they uh, they fill you up because of how oh, much protein they have. He's opening. A ridiculous amount of protein in these things. And I mean, I'll hold it up. Will to you the crunch camera. in the microphone? I'll hold it up to the camera for those of you who are here. You can see it. Ooh. It just. Ooh. It's a, it's like a kidney bean. And, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Get some Ooh, of that crunch, crunch in there. Oh, yeah, crunch. that's good. That's There's good. There's the jalapeno garlic. Um, honestly, the consistency is a lot like um, like popcorn or uh, like a cheesy puff. Something that just kind of huh. dissipates really quickly. There's a kind of nutty aftertaste to it, which means, which, you know, I prefer the sweeter ones as opposed to the spicier ones just because of that nuttier aftertaste. You get a kind of like a. Like a chocolate covered almond. Yeah, kind of like an almondy aftertaste. And so when you have the sweeter mm -hmm. ones, like, like my pumpkin spice ones, then these end up being a little bit better, in my opinion. And I just have these at my desk. And instead of reaching for a cookie or a cheesy, cheesy puff or chips or something like that or candy, you know, a handful of these and they have enough protein and fiber and whatnot that I'm not hungry anymore. And I know that it's sustainable and it takes very little resources to create these things. And they're not bad. And the more I eat them, I don't really have that disgust reflex that I had at the beginning. I actually started eating these because I felt convicted that I needed to change my eating habits to save the world. And it was disgusting when I first started. I had to hide them in things. 
and like make trail mix that had a couple of them in there and then <laughs> a couple more and a couple more because I, I could not just eat these by themselves. And I mean, you do a thing enough and it's not gross. And then you realize it was never gross to begin with. Now here I am. And I think it's great. I, so, so I want to, for for people that are listening, obviously you don't have the visual. Kendra <laughs> is all excited, like intrigued and just curious is like plastered on her face. And no emotion. Well, Adam is a fairly stoic person to begin with, but um, he, he is he is still in that like intrigued way. Like, I don't think I'm going to do it, but I'm intrigued and proud of you for doing and finding conviction. And Rachel's not having it. Is purely the disgust face of I like actual not having it. But, but I do, I, I do want to share um, a, another story. So my dad is married to a woman from Thailand and they've been married a few years. And, she misses the food back at home and she recognizes that there are many other Thai women in America that also miss it. And so she's got this wonderful business basically where she's the middleman where she's like, yeah, I like this food. And so do other Thai American women like this food, but it's really hard to get, you know, if you only want an ounce or two or five ounces, it's really hard and extremely expensive to get it. So she gets it basically in bulk, keeps it in her freezer, and then she gives it out to other people. And so one day I was over at their house and I open up the freezer, the, the outdoor freezer, and it is filled to the brim. Uh, this is a stand-up freezer filled to the brim of bugs. We're talking three inch sized exoskeleton bugs. I'm not going to call them cockroaches because I'm not positives, but it was a large exoskeleton. Quite a few of, you know, an inch to two inch long grasshopper cricket style bugs and maybe a half inch very thick mealy worm kind of white bug in addition to others that I can't even remember because I just opened the fr freezer and went are you kidding me I wanted brownies I didn't want bugs <laughs> this is not what I went into the freezer for and my dad they've only been married a few years so he came into this lifestyle of eating this way very hesitantly and he he was very similar to Zach in that sort of a yes dear if you want to eat that go ahead but I'm going to refrain <laughs> I will I will continue to eat my chicken and then she would put it in chili and she would put it in soups and she would put it in things and suddenly he really loved the flavor and now he and uh, he goes around the house just eating whatever he wants and his wife's name is called, she's Chiap, and she was also, so she comes from a culture of eating bugs, but there is one particular bug that growing up she never ate because she was disgusted by it. So she would eat all these exoskeleton kind of bugs, but the, the soft, squishy, mealy, wormy things she didn't ever eat and she was disgusted by it which I just find fascinating until one day she decided to buy it, ate it and went, oh, this is delicious. And now she eats it like candy. So um, wild. So I think even <laughs> it's exactly <laughs> even in cultures where it's common, there's still a hierarchy of there has to be some food that you don't eat. Right. And so if we can get to the place and I, I really do applaud you, Zach, for overcoming that, for finding that conviction and working through the disgust. It's all cultural. I mean, you 
we were just talking at the beginning of this about your favorite comfort food, which is primarily made out of ground up pieces of animal and then yeah. bovine excretion that has been um, left out <laughs> to, yep. uh, uh, to to. To spoil. To spoil for some time using enzymes yeah. that were originally discovered in that cow's stomach, which yep. then turns into this goopy stuff. And you then, promised me you wouldn't ruin it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think. Oh, absolutely. I think you'll find that I promised I wouldn't shame you. Uh, <laughs> well, it, this is what I'm saying. It's all just cultural. We think that milk and cheese is, is totally normal. I had somebody tell me that that it's disgusting <laughs> that women breastfeed because um, what? they could just be using <laughs> that, cow's that's, milk. That's like, problematic on a this variety is, this of is how Yeah, on a variety of levels. <laughs> variety of levels. So very many levels. Right, but it is all cultural. You curse women yeah. and their boobs. <laughs> <laughs> Put them away where they belong. Only show me them in lingerie. <laughs> How dare you? Sorry, anyway. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. When you guys come over to my house sometime, we'll all have tacos with um, chapolines. Chapolines? I don't know how you pronounce it. Little spicy grasshoppers like they do in Mexico. And I've got some good agave worm salt that we can put on the rim of our, our, of our, martini, our margarita I'm, I'm glasses. In. Yeah, me too. Zach, I, I'm telling you, I, I'm, I'm now inspired by knowing that you keep these things at your desk. But I, I think I'm going to empty the candy jar on my desk and fill it <laughs> with crickets. For now, that when just come feels like an excuse trees. for Adam to play tricks on students. Exactly. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I love it. The question is, will they be more freaked out by realizing that there are chocolate-covered crickets when they realize that, or the bowl of condoms that is also in my office to promote safe sex? Um, Take a cricket and a condom on your way out. I think that could be like the new slogan on <laughs> my door, party. right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This generation is so weird. Come see Dr. Dr. Pryor, <laughs> religion department, providing you crickets and condoms. Um <laughs> <laughs> Jesus yes. actually probably yes. actually that that sounds pretty John the Baptisty <laughs> this has been episode 25 the down the wormhole podcast if you'd like to support the show check us out on patreon or at our website at downthewormhole.com as little as a dollar a month helps us to grow this podcast and this work which we feel is so important Next week, Rachel tries to convince everyone that individual actions are at the root of systemic transformation, and Adam attempts to crush her gleaming optimism once and for all. Will he succeed? Will hope prevail? Will Kendra and Ian forge a center path that we can all agree on? Will you hear my screaming toddler in the background because I was recording my part from the Pennsylvania Turnpike? Tune in next week to find out. And now, to end on a high note, did you uh, did you hear the one about the kid who did his math homework in the elevator? That's that's problematic on a variety of levels. Yeah, so on levels. a variety of so very many levels.